0: I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. Mention innovation in America and what comes to mind? Silicon Valley? NASA? Tech firms? Not for Jim Shelton. He thinks education. In fact, he wonders why, as we learn more about the science of learning and development, shouldn't education, like, say, the military, have a full research and development infrastructure? That thinking has driven Shelton in the private sector, nonprofits, and government on a singular path, innovating our approach to learning, teaching, and education, and using that innovation to create more opportunity, greater equity, and, of course, better student outcomes. Some background. Jim served as Deputy Secretary of the United States Department of Education under President Obama, a role he took only after overseeing the Office of Innovation, which included managing the government's Investing in Innovation Fund. Before joining the administration, Jim drove education innovation in various roles, including as program director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. After leaving, he continued his push, serving as president of education at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, where he remains as an advisor while pursuing additional ventures. So what does education innovation look like, and how can it take inputs from science and elsewhere to redefine 21st century education? Here's my conversation with Jim Shelton. Jim, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Glad to do it. Looking forward to it. So to understand this conversation, I think it's particularly important to understand what brought you to this point, because you've sat at the intersection of public and private initiatives, all focused on innovation in
1: education. How did you navigate that path? In the very beginning, I mean, literally of my life, in third grade, I remember wanting to be in education. Um, because uh, the, it became apparent to me that the education I was getting was very different than the education some of my friends were getting. And I knew that they were at least as smart, if, if not smarter than I was. And so something was wrong with the system. I didn't think about it that way, but something was wrong um, that, um, that they were not getting the kind of education I, had, I was getting. What were you getting versus what they were getting? Well, uh, I mean, it was a very specific incident. I was at my friend's house, who was also in third grade, and I was helping his brother, who was in the sixth grade, with his homework. Wow. um, And I could just tell that I knew him. I knew um, how much respect I had for him. And yet, academically, it was clear he was not getting the same thing I was getting. And then take me from there. So then um, I you know stayed involved kind of peripherally in education for a variety of reasons, but mostly because my mom told me I needed to go and make money instead of go directly into education. <laughs> and I started off as a computer and uh, technology guy and developing computer systems. And that gave me a certain lens on the world and the possibilities of technology changing things. Um, I tended to lean towards science and math and uh, ultimately, obviously, computer science. And then, uh, but I kept looking at the world through the lens of both the inequities around education and other societal um, inequalities and the work I was doing in systems and technology and innovation. Uh, even when I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school for both business and education at the same time and realized that the kinds of tools and resources for transforming the business landscape that were commonplace were not even talked about in the context of my training for education. And I also recognized that um, what I thought I was going to get in terms of fundamental underpinning and how people learn and how that translates into the practices that we have in classrooms, that that didn't seem to be a part of the education that I was getting either. Mm. and as I went on in my career, I learned that lots of people um, saw as very separate the world of education from the science of learning and its underpinnings. Um, so I, you know, through a whole variety of experiences, tried to design schools and school systems and work with schools and school systems to get closer and closer to understanding what are the range of things that influence the students' outcomes in the classroom and outside. Um, what do we know about? Um, what actually supports them and gets in their way. And what does the R&D infrastructure of the country look like and how does it support it? Um, And I had the opportunity to do that, both as someone who tried to open and run schools, as someone who worked with schools and school systems, as someone who worked for a philanthropist who was investing in schools, on the government side of things, as uh, first the head of the Office of Innovation and then Deputy Secretary. And I've had the opportunity to do it in K-12 and in higher ed. And in all of those contexts, I've been able to see a, a range of challenges and problems and the potential for new and great solutions.
0: How different is it driving change from inside versus
1: outside government? You've done both. Oh, it's it's incredibly different. Um, I think more important than the differences, though, is the ways that they need each other. Mm. Um, you know, government can create context and provide funding and resources and capacity at a scale um, that no private sector entity can do. Uh, The responsibility for equality and universality and reach is uh, ultimately a governmental responsibility. The funding of research and R&D at the deepest levels in the United States has always been led um, primarily by uh, government. And people think that this is you know, unique to uh the social sector. It's true in every sector. You know, if you look through the major breakthroughs in the biological sciences and even in the technical sciences and engineering, a lot of the advances that we are working on today were paid for through NIH and DARPA and other agencies. And there's just never been that kind of investment in the education space and the sciences in the education space. But government's role is fundamental to the innovation that the private sector then is able to pick up and take and run with. And the private sector, uh, you know, you have the opportunity to make change in a variety of different ways. And I forgot to mention one of the really important things that government does. Government creates the context for incentives for how everyone else behaves, right? Um, they set up the accountability systems. They count out, set up the systems by which you can be paid and have resources flow into your organization. Um, and they uh, uh, set up the, the consequences that can fall upon you if you misbehave. And all of those incentives are actually really important to how private actors um, perform as well. On the private actor side, you have a typically, um, you know, structures that are not as democratic. Um, which means that they can move nimbly. <laughs> yeah. um, they may not engage as many stakeholders, but they can move more quickly. They can take more risk um, because they don't have political considerations. Um, and they are have natural incentives, um, uh, in most cases, for sustainability and scale. That's especially true on the for-profit side, but more and more it's true on the nonprofit profit side as well because there's not an unlimited amount of philanthropic capital. And so... When you look at the world from these two different or two or three different uh, perspectives, you quickly realize that they each has a very specific role to play, that they need to learn from each other and work together, not respond to the caricatures of what they think each other wants.
0: I want to follow up on both of those sides, on uh, the governmental side and the role of R&D and where has it been on the nonprofit and private sectors uh, that you've worked in and and some of the efforts that philanthropists have made and so on. But I think it will be helpful to just confirm a definition from your point of view um, because we're talking about innovation. What does innovation mean when it comes to education?
1: I'm really glad you asked because there are so many different definitions of innovation floating around out there. Um, and I, I did a bunch of work when I first had a job with innovation in the title to decide which one was most important, and it was in the context of education. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I realized is that there are two dimensions of innovation that are really important for something to be what I would call truly innovative. One, whatever it is, needs to produce sets of outcomes, have impact, that are significantly better than the status quo. And the second is that it actually needs to reach a large percentage of the target population over time. And and be able um, to scale, I assume, is, or is that in, is, is, that does that is, incorporate that is that scale? Yeah. That, yeah. Is, that is exactly what that means. Yeah. It means then be able to scale to reach those people, right? And so it's impact and scale. And the reason I say that is that, you know, there are lots of inventions things that show in isolated incidences great potential and actually even great results um, in isolated environments. And those are really important because they do change our sense of the possibilities. But what we need are things that actually change millions and millions of people's lives. And innovation is at that intersection of impact and scale. Um, When you think about the most innovative organizations and companies in the world, you think about things that have changed the way we live as humans and even what our expectations are. And they didn't happen because they did something really neat in one isolated environment. They did something that not only was precedent setting and did it in a way that allowed broad cross sections of the world to benefit from it and to set a new level of expectation of what was possible. That's a big deal and that's what innovation is. Is there no such thing as too big of a bite to chew? I think in the end, if our goal is to have uh, universal access to the highest quality education we can provide, then ultimately we have to assume we're trying to bite the biggest apple that there is. Um, the question is, where do you start and how do you actually learn as you go so that you um, have the benefit of winding up where you aspire to be, not um, being crushed under the weight of what you tried to bite off. And that's a tricky, tricky thing to do. Um, we're not particularly good at it, um, and we need to learn how to get better at it. But, you know, the good news is that we are getting better and better at knowing how to learn at scale as well as how to help things that work go to scale. So let me follow
0: up on some of what you were discussing earlier regarding uh, the role of government, the investment in R&D in government, some of the roles of uh, philanthropists, um, and so on. Um, To begin, where is the DARPA of education? Why, when science impacts all sorts of areas that we might not even imagine it necessarily impacting, um, agriculture comes to mind, as, as at first glance you might not imagine it, but then obviously, of course, science matters in agriculture. Well, the same is true in education, and yet something, it seems, over time has gotten lost in translation. Why has the science of education historically not been recognized in the governmental side um, as a place for research?
1: I think there are probably two or three really important reasons. I think, one, the separation of education and the science of learning, I think, um, is one really fundamental one. That somewhere, someone decided that education was about pedagogy and what happens in classrooms, and that 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 in order to figure out what to do there, you really didn't need to look very much at what the science said about how humans learn. And I'm not sure where that history emerged um um from but what i am clear is that there are often many many conversations in fact most of our schools of education are very separate and distinct from the uh the departments of cognitive science and learning science and neuroscience uh, all of which we now know have deep impacts on um whether you're able to 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 learn and what strategies are going to be most effective to teach so that's the first the second is i think that the the the, one of the things that has helped many of the markets, um, many of the sectors develop strong R&D segments, uh, develop the DARPAs, develop the NIHs, is that um, the, there was a broad agreement about what outcomes you were shooting for. Mm-hmm. And there was also an industry that formed that knew how to take advantage of new science and new technologies to their benefit. And my most cynical self says, and those industries knew how to hire lobbyists to get more funding for R&D for their sectors, but <laughs> yeah. that's a whole other story. That's another story. Um, but um, what I will say is is that that translation of learning science into practical tools and products that then there was demand for among educators um, hasn't happened well. And so the lack of translation and the lack of co-de- co-design and co-development um, is one of the the second thing. And then the third thing I would say is that um, there have been some efforts to do the work of using rigorous science to develop tools and products and resources, They but they've been typically under-resourced, and they often have uh, neglected what I'll call a more user-centered design or even design overall so that they were a little sometimes a little, sometimes a lot clunky, sometimes a little and a lot uh, impractical for the classroom, um, and often um, had trouble uh, with allowing for uh, implementation with fidelity across a different, uh, across a range of environments. And with all of those challenges, it, uh, they didn't go very far very quickly. And so um, the need for and the case for investing in more learning science or the science that could underpin these tools and products um, of different kinds or practices, um, that didn't that that case was not made very well. You have just a slight
0: bit of optimism on the government investment side, and and that is because while we have seen um, you know cuts around the education department and other government aspects of education, we did see uh, for the FY twenty twenty funding bill that it included uh, at least initially the 260 million dollars for a social emotional learning alliance to support uh social emotional learning and whole child approaches to education how significant do you find the earmarked uh, funds and even if
1: it's not enough how important is it to establish that so i think that um it's you know fantastic that um in an environment where resources are often constrained, that that much money was set aside for a part of the education system that has been underinvested. A lack of attention to the role that social emotional learning plays in supporting kids in their core development, even their academic development. Let alone, you know, the, the impetus for some of the social emotional resources was school shootings. And it's a shame that school shootings had to be the impetus, but um, also, you know, obviously those resources will be helpful uh, in setting the foundational conditions for um, kids to feel mentally and um, emotionally safe in school. That's the hope, at least. Yeah. So I think that that's critically important. But what I'll say is what it does one more time is it kind of isolates social emotional learning mm-hmm. from um, the other kinds of work that actually need to happen. And there's a what's really important is that at some point soon we have a fundamental rethinking of What are we trying to accomplish in terms of producing, when we say whole children, what does that mean? And how do these things integrate? How do the academic outcomes and skills and the other cognitive skills and the social emotional skills and the formation of identity and foundational mental health and physical health, how do those things integrate and intertwine? Aspects of them are foundational and are required for progress on all of the others. And, and what do they look like in our aspirations for what every thriving adult ought to have? Um, and we, we need to get clear on those definitions, clear on how we know whether we're making progress against them, but most importantly, clear about how we can deliver them in a variety of contexts and environments for kids and make that job doable for the adults who have them in their care. None of that is simple, but that's the work that we have to so let me
0: ask you about the philanthropy side as well, where you have deep experience, um, too. Many of our top philanthropists are focused on uh, education. What are the pros and cons of someone like that in an organization um, taking the lead on innovating education? Should education innovation be dependent on individual philanthropists?
1: So the short answer to that is no, and education innovation should not be dependent on individual philanthropists, but especially in the absence of the kind of funding that we've talked about, individual philanthropists leaning in to contribute to moving the field of education and the understanding of how um, young people of all backgrounds can learn and succeed is critical. Um, it's insufficient, but it is necessary, especially now. Um, And so there are things that we need to watch for about, um, you know, private individuals. As I said, they're, they don't have to be fully democratic. Um, They can make decisions on their own. And so the question becomes, well, what are the philanthropists doing with their resources? Who are they talking to and engaging as they are testing their thinking about how they're going to expend their resources? What evidence are they relying upon as they both, try to expand things that exist and try things that are new because we obviously need to make much more progress, much more quickly than we have in the past. And we can't do that by just doing the things we've done before. Um, Those are all things that philanthropists should be transparent about and frankly held accountable for. Mm -hmm. But there's no question about the potential and uh, vital role that they could play in helping us to move forward, um, both domestically and around the world. So let's
0: talk then as well about equity, which you raised earlier in a key focus, um, I think, of your life, it really sounds like, and, and a huge part of what has motivated you uh, maybe even since that uh, incredible third-grade story. What does equity mean to you?
1: What equity means to me is that each person has access to what they need to realize their full potential and that mm-hmm. we are – We are um, clear that someone's background is not the thing that is keeping them from achieving uh, that level of performance. Um, What it also means uh, is that we have to have a shift in mindsets and mental models because our fundamental belief set is not that People just need different levels and types of resources to get to a potential that is very similar across. But most people think we have these really wide variances in our potential that would beg you not to invest in some people. That was the whole premise of people like Charles Murray and Bell Curve, which mm. was resoundingly disproven. So um, equity is about giving people the opportunity to reach their full potential and getting things out of their way. I spoke recently
0: with uh, Karen Pittman, co-founder, president, CEO of uh, the Forum for Youth Investment, um, who also gave government service, um, like you. Um, And she has said, uh, if we're really going to address equity issues and embrace this idea that learning is social, emotional, we really have to acknowledge the importance that community partners play. Um, I imagine that is an area that you think a whole heck of a lot about. Where and how do the voices of communities, of parents, and what they want for their children, of the students themselves, get heard and put into action when it comes to improving our public education system at scale?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a long answer to this one, right? Because, again, grounding in the science, right? If you take what I just said, which is that when you look at the basic machinery of humans, we all have roughly the same basic machinery for learning. And one of the things that's really important about that is it is malleable. It is malleable mm. based on the experiences that you, life, um, and negative, and the that you have in your life, both positive and negative, and the relationships that you have in your life, both positive and negative, and the environments you find yourself in, both positive and negative. And, and the kind of community that you live in uh, both offers positives and negatives dependent on the environment. So by definition, at the most base level, at the scientific level, your community plays a fundamental role, and each of the people in your community, whether it be your most inner community in your household, or the broader community you have of peers, or the other influences in your life, all of those things have an influence on how you progress and develop as an individual. So... At a fundamental level, shaping the environments and the context that people find themselves in becomes a critical part of helping them reach their full potential. Context of bias has a deep impact on your ability to develop. The context of poverty has a deep impact on your ability to develop. And if we don't recognize those as barriers to progress um, and tackle them with the network of resources and partners that it takes to actually address them, then we're going to not realize what I described as the full dream of equity in education. So that comes back to then, how do you tackle those challenges and issues? Yes. And how do you make clear what the aspirations are going to be? Well, to try and set those separate and apart from the people who live them every day, who are most responsible for them every day, who have the most power over how they actually play out, is folly. You can't get there from here. Uh, trying to do it as a clairvoyant from the outside looking in. So getting community voice and family voice and leveraging them not only as folks to buy into your ideas, but as actually co-developers of solutions, um, helping to build their awareness of what works in the world and what has been happening in other places so they can be more informed partners in the work all of that work is a part of crafting solutions that are going to have a much greater impact and create more opportunity for the young people that we're trying to serve. Jim, are there places that
0: you see where we are doing right by all children and can those areas be scaled? I guess if are there are there things that you see going on out there that you that you just know are ripe for scaling. You've seen them work in uh, microcosms, and and you know that these are, are just primed to grow?
1: Yes. I mean, the good news is there are things that work. Um, what I would say is that, you know, it, the statement, it works for all children is a really, really big statement, right? Yeah, yeah. But there are things that work. There are things that work for large portions of the population. There are things that work and actually are not that expensive to do. And um, and so all of those things that we feel confident um, can be scaled um, and would serve kids especially better than the status quo, we should be doing that with all due haste. Glasses are not a new invention it is pretty clear that they are essential for kids who uh, have disability vision, that without addressing that issue, it's very hard for them to engage fully in the learning process. And yet we are failing to scale the basic solutions around getting kids who are low income glasses so they can actually engage in performance school. that is one of the most obvious kinds of examples. But there are other programs, whether it's um, at the top end of getting kids out, of getting them to actually complete their FAFSA, so they actually enroll in college in the fall or and then stay enrolled, or whether it's around programs that have gone through rigorous uh, trials and evaluations to produce evidence of their impacts like BAR, which is a social-emotional intervention that actually has been demonstrated not only to improve the culture of schools, but also improve academic and graduation outcomes. Like, there are a number of programs out there, numerous programs out there, that have demonstrated time and time again that they work for large numbers of kids.
0: Two questions to close out. Um, One, the science and the science of learning and development – to what extent should the science drive the innovations that we want to see to help children thrive?
1: So what I believe is that the science should underpin the innovations that we want to see available for children and help them thrive. Um, you know, we talked about how other sectors work. When you think about a field like medicine, right, um, there's so much that everyone knows there is left to learn. But everyone works from... a basically a solid stable understanding of the current state of the field of science. And you may work hard to prove a different perspective, but you are working that with that, recognizing that there is an understanding of how people think things work today. Um, there's just no corollary in the education or the science of learning space where that kind of understanding exists broadly across people in the field. We, um, there was a group literally called the Science of Learning and Development Coalition that tried to pull together a consensus view of how neuroscience and cognitive science and behavioral science and all of the other sciences that impact learning and development integrate to form a um, a solid foundational scientific base from which we can continue to do research, continue to do R&D and uh, push our thinking about what the possibilities are in terms of new areas of science that could impact learning outcomes. Um, that discipline needs to be more fully developed in the education space, and and from that is where all innovation ought to spur. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that everything happens in a lab first. One of the things that we could get much better at is using data and science to identify positive anomalies in the field, those places where kids are outperforming, teachers are outperforming, schools are outperforming, whole districts are outperforming relative to their peers, relative to similar populations of kids, relative to whatever you want, and using science to go in in better ways, more disciplined ways, understand what is making them perform better than the others, What of that could actually be extrapolated to benefit others, and how do you package that in ways that allows other people to do it and scale it quickly uh, to benefit many more children? Mm. Um, That's what I think ought to be happening with the science. Which just leads
0: to my last question. There's this incredibly admirable contradiction that I find in in doing these conversations. I, I often come across it, and you personify it as well. On the one hand you see some of the hardest parts of life. You have seen the children who don't get the benefit of the best of what learning and development should offer. Children who as a result don't get fair access to opportunity or growth or even to health. And yet you and others uh, remain, it seems, relentlessly optimistic. So one, how do you do that? Um, Two, what's next for you? Uh, Because I think there's a lesson for all of us uh, in, in both of those questions.
1: So I think there are um, probably three things that keep me optimistic. Um, The first one is that it's very rare that I meet a three-year-old that doesn't seem like a genius. (laughs) And and so recognizing that potential every time I run into a three-year-old makes me realize that it's just about us figuring it out. The second is that there are, as I said, things that work. There are places that are doing things that people would have said never could have been done with the populations that they serve. Um, and more and more people are doing that in ways that they're codifying and making it available to others. So you are seeing good practices scale. But the third thing that gives me real hope is that what I think of is in many ways the first time there is a a much broader cross-section of the education community that is thinking hard about what the science has to say Mm. about the future, about how technology can be used to accelerate the pace of our learning about the science and about learning itself, that those things then are being translated into tools and resources that not only can they be scaled, but they can be scaled at really low marginal costs, um, in some cases. Um, and so that means it can be made available to many, many more people. And those three things together make me think that with a better understanding of what we're trying to under- get done for children, that's much more holistic, we have a shot at getting there. And, um, and, it's, and it's grounded in science. And what's next for you, Jim? You know for me, I continue to have my life 's mission to figure out how to dramatically improve uh, life and life outcomes for um, frankly the lowest income portions of not only this country but people in the world. I continue to believe that education is the surest path to that, but no, it is not the only one um, that but that is it is necessary but not sufficient, and so I am looking for ways to create more integrated solutions that address some of the contextual factors that we talked about at the same time as they try and accelerate learning. Um, I believe philanthropists investing their resources is really important and possible, not at the scale, even at at scales that multiples that has happened before, given the amount of wealth that's been created in the world. And I want to try and unleash that. So that's what I'm doing. Jim, thank you. Thank you for your time and
0: thank you for uh, the work and dedication that you've given, um, at least since third grade, and my guess is probably even before that. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Jim Shelton. My thanks to Jim for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.